0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This week, a conversation about the fight to make America's newsrooms look more like America with trailblazing journalist Dorothy Butler-Gilliam, the first black woman to report for The Washington Post. Five, four, three,
1: two, one, zero, Ignition.
0: Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital.
1: Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout.
0: Major. With CBS News Chief Washington correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you, thank you, thank Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week, we are two things. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, that's number one. Steadfastly non-ideological, that's number two. Wide range of voices heard every single week at this program known as the takeout, always built around a meal. Why do I do that? Because I fundamentally believe every conversation is better when had around a meal, particularly in the city of Washington, where I do most of my work. There's a very viril- A-type personality in Washington, and having a meal, having a conversation around a meal brings everyone down a notch or two, and that's why we do it. We thank you for finding this show, however you found it, on more than 50 radio stations around the country, on CBSN, and on podcast platforms across the nation and across the globe. Thanks for joining us. It's not that often that on this show I get to meet a living legend. I get to do that today. Her name is Dorothy Butler Gilliam. Uh, She's a legend in journalism, not only in the city of Washington, but in the industry writ large. And we're talking about her book, Trailblazer, and her career in journalism. First African-American woman to be employed at the Washington Post. That happened in 1961. Dorothy, it's great to meet you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Major. It's really good to be here. So we're
0: at Kith and Kin, which is a relatively new restaurant here in Washington, D.C., on the waterfront on the Wharf Street. Uh, Kith and Kin means friends and family. Um, this is Caribbean-inspired restaurant. We're going to be ordering lunch here in a second. Edgar will be approaching the table. I already know what I want. I'm looking at a jerk chicken. It's going to be great. So that will be working in the show as we always do it. Dorothy, with your indulgence, I want to read something very early in the book uh, and get you to talk about it because it launches not only the book but your feeling as you started your professional career And something I saw on page one or two, the white press. We'll get into that in a second, because I've been a journalist my whole life. I never thought about working in the white press, but I do now. We'll get to that in a second. But I want to read from page four. In September 1961, I went to work at the Washington Post. As I entered the huge building at 1513 L Street Northwest on my first day, the memory of my Columbia University professor, John Hohenberg, who had told me, you've got so many handicaps... You'll probably make it, prompted a tiny roar inside me. He had been referring to my race and gender. My very person, separate from my abilities, could hamper my probability of success. Talk to me about that feeling.
1: That feeling was like uh, I was entering a profession with uh, two weights, two invisible weights to many people. One weight was called race and one weight was called gender and uh, I was about to dive into a sea of white men, and I wasn't sure I could swim. And part of the reason I wasn't sure I could swim, of course, was because uh, of the times in 1961. Uh, the civil rights movement was, was in in full swing and beginning to change America. But, but certainly
0: re- not legally and not in custom or in Absolutely. day-to-day interaction.
1: Absolutely. In fact, this was before the Civil Rights Movement, before the, the Public Accommodations Act, before the Women's Movement. And uh, so to enter the Washington Post as the first black woman reporter uh, was uh, quite a challenge. Uh, the other factor was that the city of Washington was also deeply segregated. And uh, uh, there was, you know, very little interaction socially among blacks and whites. Remember there, you know, restaurants were segregated, houses were segregated. If I remember
0: correctly from the book, there were two places near the Washington Post where you worked, where you could be seated. And the rest were basically off limits to you.
1: Uh, th- there was a, a cafeteria called Shoals Cap- Cafeteria that had been opened by some very progressive people. And, uh, you know, where I knew that we could I could be served and and be comfortable. But uh, most of the restaurants, you know, at that point, uh, it's possible if I entered with a white person, maybe they might have, you know, grudgingly let me in. But that that was a a real
0: issue. So let's just break this down, folks. It's a segregated city, Washington, D.C., the nation's capital. It's hard for you to get a meal. It's also hard for you to catch a cab.
1: Yes. Uh, One of the things about journalism, of course, is that daily journalism, as we uh, uh, practiced it at that point, was so, uh, uh, time was of such importance. Uh, You got your assignment in the morning, went out to get the story, you had to get back in and get it written on deadline. And uh, there was no, no leeway there. No. Uh, so you miss deadline, it's a big problem. Absolutely, and you will not be hired for very long. Right. So you need be
0: reassigned or fired. Exactly.
1: It's a and so when I would go out on the on the corner and try to hail a taxi, uh, these were long before the days of Lyft and Uber etc. You know, they, um, it was just so hard, and uh, uh, they would sometimes a cab cab driver would uh, kind of wouldn't be sure and he'd come and he'd see my dark brown face and he would hit the accelerator and this was also a racial thing oh very definitely cab drivers were white most almost all the cab drivers were white and uh and this was also a time when there were not that many uh, uh people of color even working in downtown washington uh so just uh dealing with the issue of of functioning as a journalist, you know, getting taxicabs, getting back on time, all of those things were, were very, very challenging.
0: With your indulgence, let me read from page 8 about this very topic. I never told my editors about these snubs and slights because race was not discussed in the workplace. I felt that complaining would just give the editors a reason not to hire another black woman. I feared they would say you can't hire them because they can't get the job done. Cabs won't pick them up. It's not the, our fault that they didn't make it. The reality of the times just doesn't make it possible. It's hard for those who never experienced life during legal or de facto segregation to imagine it.
1: Yes, and uh, That's one people, of the reasons pe- I want to
0: dwell in on this because a yeah, good portion pe- of my audience is younger and may have some dim sense of this but not actually realize these things were all too real.
1: And they were all too real for millions of black people in America, uh, and for those of us who were w- marching out to be among the first, uh, to try to, to, uh, be a part of that, uh, group that integrated these institutions that had formerly, uh, not hired any, any people of color. Um, uh, it, it was really important that, uh, we learn to bear up under, uh, such harsh conditions. Um, I think the, uh, if I had gone and and said, you know, I can't do it, uh, as I said in the book, that would have been, well, we tried, we couldn't do it. Uh, You felt an
0: extra burden, not just to do your job, but to do it in a way that would not jeopardize somebody
1: else. The people who I knew would come behind us. And part of that had been the African-American culture, to remember that, uh, you know, as, as an oppressed people. It was really important for us to, uh, uh, when we opened door, the door for us, to leave it open for somebody else. And that's part of the way that the, the progress that was made under such difficult circumstances was made. So uh, one of the things that uh, was hardest for me, and people ask me, what, what did you, how did you stand it? You know, how, how could you just... Uh, tolerate that kind of uh, and these are you know white people and you know i said i think part of my strength my inner strength really came from the black religious experience my dad was a minister uh it was i, I had uh, grown up in an atmosphere of totally segregated because i had grew up in the segregated south and uh, i never went to school with white people i had any interaction so um Uh, One of the things that I always said was uh, I was always taught that uh, I had to define myself, and I wasn't what other people said I was.
0: That's the voice of Dorothy Butler-Gilliam, our special guest. We're going to talk about her book, Trailblazer, and her life in American journalism here in Washington. We're at Kith and Kim. I made you get back for segment two in just a moment. Terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're at Kith and Kim in the uh, waterfront of Washington, D.C. Edgar's going to approach the table real quick. Uh, I will have, I'll skip the uh, small plates and go straight to the, straight to the big plate because that's sort of the way I live. Uh, the jerk chicken for me will be great. And Dorothy?
1: Uh, yes. I will have the dollop uh, rice. And for the first course, I'll have the uh, cucumber salad with avocado.
0: Edgar, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Edgar. Uh,
0: the Post is a very big part of this book, but you had a previous career We talked about and made a reference to Columbia University. Tell my audience a little bit about your upbringing mm-hmm. and your early career in the black press. We'll mm-hmm. talk about that for a mm-hmm. second.
1: Yes, as I had mentioned before, I have grew up in the in, as a minister's daughter and in a Situation where you know I, I just felt very loved by the the people I was surrounded with, and that gave me a lot of inner strength um, I didn't really set out to be a journalist I, after I finished high school. I was thinking about being a children's lawyer I wanted to be an advocate for children, but uh, I got a job a part time job in the at the weekly black newspaper called the Louisville Defender, and that job was to take Uh, you know, be the secretary for the editor. And one day he came up to me and he said, uh, the society editor is ill, so I'm going to send you out to do a story. Well, I was shocked, (laughs) but I took the dare. Right. And uh, it was the first step in really learning that journalism was a profession that really showed me new and different worlds. Uh, And this was not going to, you know, if I could really be a journalist... Uh, I would not end up doing the same thing every day. Right. It's one of the great things about this work. Exactly. And so, for the as the, quote, society editor of this black newspaper, uh, you know, I learned that the, we had a small black middle class in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, they certainly lived a lot more elegantly than we did uh, in terms of, you know, they had waterford China and they had, you know, very... Uh, 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 nice parties and things that the society had to cover, and uh, I didn't want what they had, but I I wanted to be able to continue to experience these new worlds See throughout my worlds. life. worlds, yeah. And that is what journalism has done for me. But the black press um, has been around for uh, hundreds of years, and in fact, uh, uh, during all the er- periods of uh, segregation. Uh, I think even uh, some uh, black uh, press people were working, uh, even while some others were enslaved people. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's uh, always the voice of the community, Uh, the voice of the community and and an advocacy press. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so I was I was very uh, interested and I decided I needed to go away to get trained as a journalist when I graduated Uh, I tried to get a job at the white newspaper in Louisville, and I was definitely not uh, encouraged. But one of the things that you learn to know, I think, as an African-American in this country, is when you're being encouraged and when you're being discouraged. Mm. And so I got a letter from them saying, well, we don't have any other places at the Louisville Times or the Louisville Courier Journal. And we don't have any internships available. You know, we've already filled those with students from Indiana University. So I said, I've got to get a job. And I found a job in Memphis, Tennessee, a- again, at the Weekly Black Press. And it turned out to be advantageous in many ways. Uh, these The editors and people who worked in these newspapers were often very experienced and the person with whom I worked uh, was a man named Alex Wilson, and he was—he uh, covered a lot of the civil rights st- uh, events in the South. So I'm in Memphis. I'm, I'm just a, a beginning reporter, right. 20 years old. And uh, he said, "Well, I'm going to go over and cover the integration of, of Central High School, and you stay in the office, and you know, if anything, you know, write any stories that come up."
0: Central High School in. Uh, little rock arkansas this is among the most seminal moments in the struggle for civil rights in our country
1: absolutely
0: and he goes to cover it and you stay behind and then what happened
1: what happened is he was beaten by a mob a white mob that surrounded the school because i think they thought he was one of the parents of the children and um so they were walking up to the school to write the story and they were chased by this mob and uh, my boss, Mr. Wilson, said, uh, uh, "I'm not going to run." He just refused to run, and so he was jumped on. He was beaten. Uh, he uh, one of the people yelled out at him, "Run! Damn you, run!" And he just refused to run, and they uh, they knocked him down. Uh, so he was really seriously hurt. Uh, and uh, when I re- saw it, in the, I was back in the office, and I saw our little black TV, black and white TV, said. Uh, you know this had happened, and then this black reporter had been hit, so I went to little rock and that 's what reporters do you right. know, we just go for the story we go for the story, and uh so I was able to help do some coverage i mean i didn 't have the experience that he had to really cover it, and he really refused to go uh, and stay in the hospital. I think he went to an emergency room somewhere, but uh, basically uh. He he never really recovered from those from that beating and uh, about four, four, four or five years later, years later he, he died died prematurely he for died sure. prematurely right uh, so that but the uh, from a selfish perspective at least I getting to go to Little Rock was in, was important because uh, not only did I see the action not only was I able to you know capture what was going on but I also met. So many of these black reporters who had been covering civil rights for years uh, they they had gone through so much uh, to go behind the cotton curtain and tell what was really going on in the south mm. and and you have to remember, uh, major that uh, uh white daily newspapers were not sending uh, their reporters in the south right to to report what was going on i mean it would ha- it would be an unusual case like. The murder of Emmett Till in 1955 uh, that would you know, attract the attention. But I think that the first time white newspapers paid much attention to, to black people per se, except in the case of some heinous crime, was after the 1954 school desegregation.
0: And I want to pick up on that, Dorothy, because from your book, again, let me read. This is uh, page 52 from Trailblazer. Talks about some of the things you just mentioned. Black journalists shared all the problems of white reporters as a largely Northern antagonistic press confronting fiercely hostile white populations. But in addition, we faced the actual circumstances of segregation. We could not check into a hotel, eat in restaurants, use public restrooms, or drink from water fountains as the white journalists did. At highly covered civil rights trials, such as that for the murder of Emmett Till, ample space was set up for white reporters while the Negro press table was a folding card table not large enough to accommodate the black reporters
1: so even uh, you know professional black journalists who had uh, credentials experience careers, and, right were were subjected to uh, you know all of the horrors of segregation and I think when I felt it most keenly was when uh, after I went to the Washington Post in 1961 I was assigned as one of the team of white of reporters going to cover the integration of the University of Mississippi in 1962. And when I got there, uh, you know, I I couldn't go to a hotel uh, because I knew there were no hotels for blacks. And so uh, I was with this photographer that I had uh, hired on a per diem basis. And um, uh, he uh, said, well, let's go to uh, some of the funeral homes and see if they know of some person who might have an extra bed where you can sleep tonight. And um, when we got to the funeral home, uh, and you have to remember that anarchy is breaking out uh, on the campus of University of Mississippi. You know, the audacity of a lone black man to, to think that he could integrate this bastion, you know, of, of, of white supremacy uh, had just unraveled uh, the total, you know, mentally emotional and mm-hmm. whatever, uh, in, uh, in the white Mississippians. So it was anarchy on the campus. But when I was, when I said, uh, I, th- I had to sleep somewhere and, uh, he said, well, you can sleep here. He said at the funeral, at home. the funeral home. Uh, and I thought, well, that'll be a lot quicker than, you know, trying to find someplace else to sleep. But that was just typical. That was typical ta- of the, cha- of the challenges that, that, uh, you know, black reporter's face.
0: That's the voice of Dorothy Butler-Gilliam. We're talking about her book, Trailblazer, and her career in journalism, which is precisely that. I'm Major Garrett with Kith and Kim. Back for segment three in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Our special guest is Dorothy Butler-Gilliam. She covered that sweltering oppression and injustice, as a reporter for the Washington Post, when James Meredith integrated the University of Mississippi, uh, help our audience and you began to do this. Understand how big an event that was, and how much Mississippi was a symbol of resistance to it.
1: Yeah. Yes, uh, Mississippi was such a symbol of uh, and reality of the of the uh existence of uh, segregation that it became the model for apartheid in south africa where and we know that in south africa for so many 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 years and decades uh the the uh the white minority ruled the white majority um, the black majority absolutely right. sorry about that yeah. Uh, yes, the the uh, white minority ruled the black majority under very very harsh and horrible conditions. So uh, Mississippi was a place where uh, you know blacks didn't vote, uh, a place where uh, uh, they c- a black person could be killed and nothing could would happen to the white person who killed him. Um, the it was a, a state where um, the the oppression was such that. Uh, you know, the miracle was that that black people uh, uh, was were able to just live and to grow and to and to think and to be under that level of oppression, uh, because um, you know they they it, it was a lynching state. And uh, people uh,
0: might think, well, okay, James Meredith got in. It, there was kind of a scuffle.
1: No, it wasn't a scuffle. It wasn't a scuffle at all, no. 32,000 federal troops had exactly. to be deployed. Let, let me yeah, exactly. listen to that
0: number again, ladies 32,000
1: federal troops were deployed in America to enforce the law. Exactly. And uh, even during the, the whole process, uh, the the federal government had uh, was dedicated to... Uh, making certain that the law was going to be enforced and that meant that there were um, justices who accompanied uh uh, i guess meredith was probably never left alone after he made that decision um it was a time when you know you could you you knew that there there were so many wrongs that needed to be righted but that that you could uh, you know, once the law was passed, once a federal law had been passed, there was such a, uh, a, a devotion. Then it had to be enforced. On de- making certain that that law was enforced. So and I think that's a really key point at this point.
0: You've got to pass the law, then you've got to enforce the law. Exactly. So I want to ask you a philosophical question. Uh, I've covered, I've been a reporter for nearly, well, more than 30 years. I've covered lots of big stories, huge stories. And there's a tremendous adrenaline rush, there's a great sense of responsibility, devotion to duty, all those things apply universally across journalism. It's one of the reasons we do this work, because of all that adrenaline rush and the feeling you get from it. But you're in the middle of not only a great story, a massive story of national and international importance, but a story that is part of your experience in America how did, did, did you feel a desire? Did you feel a need? Was there any sense that you had to separate yourself from that? Or you mentioned a moment ago the black press bring an advocacy press. How did, you, fa- how did this factor into your human experience
1: Well, as uh, an, an African American? Right. Um, you know, I think that there are certain things that you, uh, things were so uh, horrible that any person of any color observing it would have to write about what was happening, yes. and would, would and would simply, you know, record what they were seeing. So um, I, I think there's there's never any doubt that you know uh, my objectivity or whatever would be in question there because uh, you know you were just writing you just wrote about what you saw. Right. when you saw um, you know if I saw a mob of white people uh, jumping on my black boss, you know you're just describing. You it. it. Uh, when you When I knew that on the campus of University of Mississippi, two people had been killed the night before I arrived. one was a French journalist, and one was a like an innocent white bystander who came to check out what was happening so uh, uh, so much of of what life was like in those days uh, was so was so clearly uh, dehumanizing uh, that once the white press. Started uh, covering what was going on uh, in that in that part of the world that in many ways was almost the some of the best reporting Mm -hmm. that was done right um and in fact there have been um you know several uh documentaries that have really focused on that because uh in many ways uh, you know that uh exposure (laughs) in the white press really helped to um you know bring about some of the changes that were made during the civil rights movement but uh, uh th- as a black journalist and as i think most black journalists there was there was never the question of oh Ooh, the food uh, has arrived spectacular. You know, does it look spectacular beautiful
0: thank you edgar that looks fantastic Thank you. yeah so much.
1: there was never the question of uh, can you tr- do this can you cover this fairly right you know uh so i think the human part of me was, yes, I was a little more fearful mm-hmm. uh, because I knew that, you know, anything could happen. Right. Uh, uh,
0: the personal stakes for you were very high.
1: Right. Exactly. But but they were... But the
0: story was the story.
1: And it was a story that was so important. Right. Uh, so important to, to uh, change the lives of people. And, and to, uh, and to I, change
0: the way this country thought about exactly, itself. Exactly. I, w- I want to ask you about something you write about on page 69, which was... Um, a revelation you heard you learned of many many years later you made a reference to a gentleman who was a very accomplished freelance photographer named Ernest Withers who was a a significant help to you in these early travels in the Mm -hmm. south and I want to read directly from page 69 Mm -hmm. I was stunned when in 2010 the commercial appeal that's the Memphis newspaper revealed that he Ernest Withers had been a paid FBI informant supplying information he had gleaned from his insider status as a photographer of the civil rights movement I was devastated, hmm. deeply disappointed, furious even. Mm, that must have been so hard. It and it and what did that tell you? Did it tell yeah. you anything,
1: or it, was it a one-off, or did it, it? How did it affect you? It it told me that uh, first of all, as you, as I said, I was upset for days. You know, when you really uh, have trouble digesting something uh but I think it 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 told me that he was a very flawed human being um I think it you know I'm sure he to be a freelance photographer in Memphis Tennessee you know in the 50s and 60s was not paying him a lot of money Mm -hmm. but you know the the fact that he would and I'm sure he was being paid for this sure uh that he would do that and uh and he had, and I think the thing that hurt me so much is that he had so much uh, inside access. You know, he could walk in, you know, into Martin Luther King's bedroom in a hotel mm-hmm. uh, and uh, see what was going on. You know, right. uh,
0: so and it also spoke to how aggressive the FBI was about trying to find out what was going on.
1: Uh, that's another important point. J. Edgar Hoover was uh, the FBI uh, director at the time. Yes, yeah. was a person who was. Who had determined that, uh, you know, the civil rights movement, that this movement, this freedom movement on the part of of, of black Americans, was uh, was you know an endanger was a danger to the larger society, and um, this uh, that meant that he could just you, unleash, you know, all of the all of the uh, the various things they had. Uh, and and of part the of the ways tool they had to. was to infiltrate it. Exactly.
0: I'm gonna pick up on that in just a second. That's the voice of Dorothy Butler Gilliam. Our lunch has arrived. We're gonna take a brief break and come back for segment four in just a second. Thanks. Like the show, love the show, need or want to vent, we understand. Let us know. Takeout podcast at CBSnews.com. From CBS News, this is is the takeout with Major Garrett? Welcome back. We're at Kith and Kin, which is uh, friends and family. It's a Caribbean-inspired restaurant. We have our food uh, for lunch, spectacular. Uh, it's part of the Intercontinental Hotel here at the Wharf in Washington D.C. Our special guest is Dorothy Butler Gilliam. Her book, Trailblazer. I want to read the subtitle because we're going to get to that here in a second. A pioneering journalist fight to make the media look more like America. When you think of that, what do you mean and? You're actually a living, breathing embodiment of that. You did that. You helped create that. And your life's work as a columnist later at the Washington Post and with many groups devoted to diversity and journalism, journalism have to a certain degree achieved that. I want you to explain a little bit of that to my audience.
1: Well, um, when I first entered the media, um, it did not look like America. Uh, as the only African-American, you know, the first African-American woman reporter at the Post, uh, it was clear to me... From having come from, you know, uh, the segregated South, that there were a lot of other uh, ways that the media needed to be represented. And so, what I found is that for the for the daily media to truly be representative, it needs to have diversity. It needs to have people of of color uh, in various uh, positions in management. Uh, it needs to have women it needs It cannot have cannot be the way it was when I first went and one of the things that I tried to do uh... and but especially with the help of so many other uh... reporters uh... was to go about how do we change this picture and we decided that we needed to to one we needed to train some other african-americans to be able to go into the white press and uh, one of the main people uh, at the Washington Post with whom I became associated was a man named Robert Maynard mm-hmm. yes. and right and he legendary in our industry exactly and uh, he's he was one of the the leaders uh, of this group that we came together and we started the Institute for Journalism Education and our idea was to train as many African-Americans as possible to start entering into into uh, mainstream journalism. That's what that's what we called it then. Right. And um, so we started a, a program at the using the facilities of the University of Berkeley, at, University of California at Berkeley, to train uh, journalists to train reporters. Uh, then we said we need more diversity among editors. So we were able to start a program at uh, arizona the university of arizona tucson to train editors and then we we said well we need more managers so we needed we started a program at northwestern to, to train managers and one of the reasons this was so clearly necessary was because we we know that you have to get give all americans front door access to the truth that you're putting out there right. and it's not going to be the full truth if it only seen through white eyes
0: not just at the reporter level but at mid management and senior management absolutely to have the conversations run throughout about approaches to stories what is a story what isn't a story what's the angle what are the ways to what questions to ask what ways to develop a story
1: exactly and and so often if that when that if you didn't have that sensitivity even after you hired a black reporter they would come up and they'd say oh this uh, describe a story and you were saying Very often the editor would say, well, I I don't think that's a story. Right. Because it's not a story within his limited lens. But so often they didn't realize that their lens was limited. And so what we had to do was to fight to, you know, uh, to make sure that all Americans would have front door access to the truth. That's what we were trying to do.
0: I want my audience to know that this was actually studied at the governmental level in the Mm mid-60s. What was going on and what was reflected by the media? And I want to read again with your indulgence, mm-hmm. Dorothy, from page 157 of your book, Trailblazer. On February 29th, 1968, shortly after the wave of urban insurrections, the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, known as the Kerner Commission, blasted the nation's white press, charging it had, quote, too long basked in a white world, looking out of it, if at all, with a white man's eyes and a white perspective. You go on to write, The American press frequently portrayed African Americans as if Negroes were not part of the audience, said the report, adding news organizations, quote, failed to communicate to both their black and white audiences a sense of the problems America faces and the sources of potential solutions. The commission's report urged the hiring of black reporters and editors to counter a press that, quote, repeatedly reflects the biases, paternalism, And indifference of white America. I want to focus on those words at the very end paternalism and indifference.
1: Has Uh, that been remedied? It has not been remedied. Has it it been addressed? It has been addressed. It is being addressed but it still has a long way to go. First of all, we know that the media has undergone tremendous change. Yes. Um, But I still I want to talk about you know the major broadcast outlets, the major long form journalism newspapers. Um, There's still a lot of work to do. Uh, I think uh, one of the things that uh, when I look at the looked at the New York Times uh, their 1619 report, that to me was such an important step. And the way that 1619
0: is a reference to the landing. In southern Virginia of the first known vessel carrying slaves who were then sold at auction in, in what was to become colonial America.
1: Right. That was a year before the Pilgrims uh, arrived. So the legacy, I think, that, that really the, the New York Times magazine has really shown and that will, I think, enlighten a lot of Americans uh, is, is, the, is the knowledge of what has happened um, slavery, for so long, was not a, talked about uh, just as when I first went to the post race wasn 't discussed um, these are These are uh, essential facts for you know for for Americans to know to truly understand something about who they are.
0: This is a hard thing to do, but i've've got, I've got forty five seconds for those who would say to you but dorothy i didn 't have any part of slavery. Why are you hassling me about it? What would you say
1: I would say that you have uh, Enjoyed white privilege. I would say that that the white white supremacist, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you know, mentality that has ruled this country from the beginning uh, has always given more privileges to whites, and has also had a whole anti-black underpinning, the underpinning in laws, the underpinning in policies, and even today, America has the largest number of prisoners than in any other country. And uh, almost half of those are young black men. So there's still a great deal that has to be understood and digested. And I think what is happening in the country now is, is part of this, this um, like a, a disruption, like one of those moments in history that where something, uh, something is, 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 is going to be changing. And uh, I, I hope it does. And you're
0: optimistic about that.
1: I am hopeful. Okay. Dor- but not, but not optimistic.
0: That's an important distinction. Dorothy Butler Gilliam has been our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for joining us. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Eric Susanen and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
1: Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.
0: A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your Podcasts.